This is the future of water, where we talk about all the ways which companies, utilities, and people are addressing the challenges and opportunities in water. Today, we're going to talk with Bluefield's Aaron Bonnie Casey about water rates and drought. Given the recent news from out west, coupled with our recent analysis of water rates, we thought this would be an interesting discussion to share with you. Admittedly, this topic began as part of an internal research call among the analysts. So there's some things here worth discussing, including the potential impacts of drought on water rates. Are they correlated or not? So that's the question of the day. But before we jump into the conversation with Aaron, let's talk about some news. I got three news items for you. Number one, federal officials have mandated the first ever water cuts to the Colorado River system or basin amidst a drought that's poised to devastate farms, power stations, and communities. Amazingly, the river itself sustains about 40 million people. We're about 13% of the U.S. population, which is kind of amazing. It also irrigates more than 5 million acres out west. It's messy, it's dirty, and Arizona seems to be the biggest loser in this initial cut, there are a series of other cuts planned based on water levels for Lake Powell and Lake Mead. So be on the lookout as the drought continues. News item number two. In Chile this week, BHP Billiton or BHP Group, a mine was ordered to haul groundwater pumping for three months while Antofagasta warned it will produce less this year because of water supply constraints. The economy has been buzzing globally and copper prices have been soaring as have iron ore, except for the past couple of weeks. Um, I do read the news, so there's been some softening because of what's happening in China. But that being said, Chile is an interesting market. One, they're going through a constitutional crisis where they're considering rewriting their constitution, which could impact not only mines, but also water utilities, but also how water is used and how it's allocated. The mining sector in Chile, uh, much of which is in the northern part of the country, is extremely dry or water stressed, driest place on earth, the Atacama Desert, but also there have been some desalination plants built and dedicated exclusively to some of these mines, including BHP's Escondida Mine. I think they spent a billion dollars, maybe 500 million. I'm getting a little long in the tooth. I can't remember everything, but water is a real concern for the mining sector in Chile. So this is interesting news to see this happening while they are in drought. News item number three, water is on the corporate reign. Seems big tech players, Microsoft, Facebook, food and beverage companies like PepsiCo and oil and gas firms like BP are committing to becoming water positive or net water positive over the next decade. Uh, Many of them have set deadlines to achieve water positivity by 2030. At least they've set that as a target date. And that means they're going to basically use less water than they put back into the environment, what it seems like. So it'd be interesting to see what they do with it. My colleague, Cullen Mitchell, has been digging into these corporates. And I think he's identified six to eight strategies that corporations are using to better manage or differently manage, uh, alternatively manage their water usage, but also their wastewater effluence. Uh, It kind of depends on the industry 
and where they are that obviously dictates how they're dealing with it. So I look forward to seeing that research. So those are three new news items. So before we jump into the conversation with Aaron, I just want to let everybody know Bluefield has just updated its website. So feel free to check it out. There's a different layout focusing on critical water topics that are hopefully clear to you as a visitor, but also gives you direct access to things like the Future Water Podcast, as well as Dave McGimsey's Water Values Podcast. Shout out to Dave, who brings in outside perspectives on what they see happening across various aspects of the water sector. But also, you know, we have, uh, we're transitioning to sharing blogs or we have a blog, uh, to put it simply on our website. Uh, just recently, we released something on the Bureau of Land Management's cuts to the water allocations in the lower Colorado River Basin. So that was put out earlier this week. So check it out. It's on bluefieldresearch.com. You can always explore. And lastly, sign up when you visit our website. As a reminder, again, you can sign up for our Waterline newsletter and receive curated news and data from our team of water experts. They're the ones who pick out the news every week. You'll get that, plus you get notifications of other, not only discounts and deals for Bluefield Research, but also other news items that may be of interest to you and your colleagues. So sign up, it's easy. And lastly, subscribe to the Future Water Podcast. We wanna make this better and more informative for everyone, so don't hesitate to reach out. You can always let us know if you have any questions at waterexperts at bluefieldresearch.com with ideas or questions. Curious minds wanna know. So let's do it. Let's have a conversation with Aaron Bonnie Casey. All right, so I'm joined here with Aaron Bonnie Casey, Research Director for Bluefield. Aaron, how are things? They're pretty good, Reese. Happy to be here today. I'm just wrapping up the summer here at Bluefield. Um, I'm not. I'm not quite there yet. Summer ends for me in September. I go by the calendar at the very least. Hopefully, it'll stretch out beyond then. But uh, yeah, that's the way it goes. I mean, for those who might be curious, there's also a movie being filmed outside of the office right now. So. We're all on Celebrity Watch. I don't know who is famous is in the movie. Hopefully it's someone good. I don't know. Have you seen anybody? I haven't seen anybody. There's a lot of uh, vintage cars out on the street though. So. Yeah, it's amazing what uh, tax breaks will do. We get a lot of movies filmed here in Boston. So, well, look, Aaron, uh, to, the, to the matter at hand, we've been doing some research uh, led by you on water rates in the U.S. This is something we do every year sort of as a benchmark analysis to monitor the trends and changes for municipal utilities and actually the water bills for water and wastewater services to customers. So let's start with the basics. Give us a little bit of an idea of sort of what we've been doing and what are the, what are the general takeaways. Yeah, so kind of the nuts and bolts of this research, every year we look at 50 utilities across the U.S., the largest 50, and that provides services, those 50 utilities provide services to about 20% of the U.S. population. So we're getting a decent chunk of population served with those utilities, and we look at residential water and wastewater bills calculated based on a 30-day billing period and for a standard 5 eighths inch meter 
and the rates that we look at are for basically the last fiscal year. So effective from July, 2020 through June, 2021. We typically calculate bills using a benchmark national average for consumption to compare basically where is water most and least expensive in the country. And then we also look at regionally specific water use patterns to take into account the differences in in water use kind of per household across the country. We group the cities into four regions, the Northeast, the Midwest, the South, and the West, which are associated with the regions established by the U.S. Census Bureau in order to identify relevant regional variations in water and wastewater pricing. And those regions also reflect kind of variations in in water use patterns as well because of their similarities kind of climatically in terms of consumer behavior. I mean, I would say, and before, you know, I'll ask you for the sort of takeaways from the data collection and analysis, but it seems to be the case that there is really no sort of year-to-year pattern not only across the board, but also from utility to utility, correct? Yeah, when we look at the utilities in aggregate, you know, we do see a clear pattern that rates rise every year overall, but the amount of the rate increase varies a lot year to year. And when we look at specific utilities, that variation is even greater. So, you know, some utilities will have a consistent rate increase year to year, other utilities will be flat for a number of years and then have a significant rate increase. Some of that is driven by local politics. They don't like to raise rates in an election year, for example. It could also be related to kind of local infrastructure needs. And so uh, rates are being are responding to utility spending and by utility. So with that being said, I mean, we've looked at these 50 metropolitan areas in the U.S. So what are the Let's put it in context. How much are people paying? Yeah, so on average, um, a household pays about $45 per month on for water and a little over $66 per month for uh, wastewater or sewer services. And I guess the maybe it's a surprise to people, maybe not. I mean, if you're really in tune with the water sector, you'd know this, but what wastewater bills are higher, right? I don't think most people think about that. I think the general trend is people don't really like to think about wastewater, but it's a big chunk of the overall bill. So on a year-to-year basis, where do we stand? You know, you've done it since. We've been looking at the data since 2011, 2012. Yeah, we go back to 2012. And so when we look at that period, on average, uh, bills increase 4.2% year over year for the past nine years. Like I mentioned previously, it varies by year. But to put that into perspective, services like electricity and natural gas, they average about a 1% increase per year. So water and sewer bills are are rising faster than inflation and faster than other utility bills as well. Well, to jump ahead a little bit, I guess one question that I was going to ask you, so I might as well ask it now is, when we do look at the water utilities and their rate structures, I mean, it does differ from the power sector. The power sector has a bit more flexibility in how they apply their rates or build our customers, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one big difference is that power rates are typically variable based on time of day or uh, season of the year. Um, 
water rates, they can vary seasonally, but they, they can't really vary by time of day because water meters are not as sophisticated as power meters. And there's limited data um, that the utility has or that the, that the individual household has about water use by time of day or by application. So water, water rates are much simpler than power rates. It's pretty much a standard. They read your meter once a month and then they bill you based on that consumption that one number. Yeah. And I think the thing about the power sector also is, you know, an electron is an electron. It's easy to wheel one around from either through transmission lines, obviously, but from different across geographies, right? The network or the electric power infrastructure is set up to do that, you know, for the most part with at least within regions and such, whereas water is very localized we're talking, you know, there, what are there, 10 times more water, wastewater utilities than there are uh, electric utilities in the U.S. alone. So that's part of it as well. So as you can see, you know, places like, you know, New England, we're far from any sources of gas. And so therefore, you know, it's more expensive here than it is, let's say, in Texas, for example. But the, I think the other thing that we've talked a lot about and also talked some with our corporate customers or clients, and that is how do you, you know, do customers, one, do they know, like I said, you know, you mentioned that the wastewater rates are significantly higher than the, than the water rates. There's also no meter on the wastewater flows, right? It's really a ratio or a formula sort of attached to how much water you use, correct? Yeah, so there's just one meter in your house and it measures the wa- the amount of water coming in. So the wastewater bills are calculated based on that number of water coming into your house. So water and wastewater bills have increased, what, 4.2% this past year, or that's actually over nine years. What number am I looking at? <laughs> yeah, so the average is 4.2% in the last year. Um, the average bill went up a little bit more than that 4.3%. Um, in the previous year, so 2019 to 2020, they rose actually over 6%. Um, we did see some utilities this past year put off planned rate increases as a result of the pandemic in response to trying to relieve some of the financial pressures on their ratepayers. So that does account for that decrease in rate increases between 2019 and 2020. Okay. And so when we, I mean, I think it was even two, three years ago, they went, they were growth or increases. Was it 1.3, It took it, you know, so it is pretty volatile within a band, right? Let's say from one and a half percent to six and a half percent, there are swings from year to year. So Getting to how utilities use these, the revenues generated from rates, what's the typical trend or application that we see of the revenues? Yeah, so water utilities are primarily using the revenues generated from these fees for service uh, to fund their operating costs. That would include, you know, energy costs to run plants and pumps chemicals for water disinfection and wastewater treatment, uh, wages for utility employees as well as their existing debt burden from capital expenditures, uh, building and maintaining water and sewer infrastructure. There's some discussion that 
utilities that sit within a city government. So that would that's to say the water utility is a department within the overall city, for example, um, can in certain instances use water and sewer revenues to fund other aspects of city operations. Um, or on the flip side, that they can use other sources of revenue like sales taxes to fund water utility operations. And those examples get a lot of attention in the media, like is the city using the utility as a cash cow? Are they taking advantage of the fact that this is a natural monopoly for them to gouge their customers? But in reality, that doesn't happen very frequently. Most cities and utilities have separate budgets and they're not moving monies around. So the revenue generated by the water and sewer utilities are set, the rates are set in order to cover the operating costs of those utilities. There's not a ton of excess profit generated from water and sewer services. So, and I think one of the things we may have discussed it on this podcast, we've definitely talked about it internally. It kind of depends. There is a, I don't know if it's a heuristic, but basically based on utility size, right? And what role do, you know, uh, water rates or bills and revenues generated from them play for a small utility versus a large utility? And there's a big difference, correct? Larger utilities have more more options for funding capital expenses. Um, they can issue bonds. They have better access to better rates on the commercial debt market and things like that. So they do have cheaper money available. That affects how much they have to spend or how much they have to set their rates at in order to generate the revenue that they need to operate. Smaller utilities also are more likely to be embedded within a city government, and so there's a little bit more of the money moving from one department to another, or the budgets being, you know, maybe it's the water utility and the public works department are one, one department in smaller utilities, whereas large cities, they tend to keep the water utility totally separate. In many cases, it's, it's an entirely separate entity than, than the city itself. Yeah. And I think that was a question that came up during COVID. We were doing some analysis on utility budgets and where they're generating revenues and where their sources of funding were coming from. And that showed up at least in a, in a quick analysis. So, all right. So the other thing in the news that's worth considering, well, I think it's worth considering and it came up in the discussion we had and I was, all right. So we've done some analysis on the water rates. So now we go out West, right? And we see this drought that's happening and in the past week or two, it's the 25th. So maybe two weeks ago, the Bureau of Land Management has basically initiated cuts or reductions to water allocations from the Colorado River. So I guess a question that was asked by someone was, well, should this not impact water rates either now or going forward? What's Is there a correlation between the two? Yeah, I mean... I get this question all the time from people in my, my life outside of the water sector. Can we use, essentially it boils down to, can you use price controls or use price to control demand? And I would say the answer is not really. There's some attempt to use um, water prices to control uh, consumer demand. And one example of that would be tiered pricing, which is where a small amount of household water use is relatively cheap, and then a large amount of water use gets progressively more expensive. So that would, 
if you think about kind of luxury uses of water, like um, maintaining a big lawn or filling a swimming pool, those would be more expensive than the water you need for cooking and bathing and things like that. So utilities, utilities try and do that and it does work to some extent, but demand for water is pretty inelastic. So you have to have a significant price increase to affect consumer behavior in that way. Um, the other problem with trying to use price to respond to drought conditions in particular is that water rates get set typically once a year and it's a several month long process. The rates get announced and they don't go into effect for a few months. In some cases, they have to be approved by a utility commission. So they, they can't be very reactive to acute drought conditions that kind of arise over the course of a year. You can take into account kind of chronic water scarcity, which is what some Western utilities are trying to do. But again, it's not a great response to, to a drought that arrives in the middle of your fiscal year. Right. And so it's, you're right. I mean, so if you're looking out West, it's now, it's chronic, right? It's a mega drought as we've, others have called it or, you know, termed it. Um, it's been going on for a while. Um, and I guess the other, so where we may ultimately see, I mean, it gets back to how are utilities or cities going to pay for alternative sources of water or which is going to require capital, large capital projects could be desalination, could be uh, reuse. But I think in, when it comes to the Bureau of Land Management cuts, it seems at least the first stage is really going to impact one, Arizona more than others, and it'll impact agriculture, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so I mentioned that the utility rates and revenues can be used to fund or to pay down debt that was used to fund infrastructure developments and improvements. And so if you're thinking longer term about utilities that are going to have to invest in new infrastructure projects in order to deal with drought and water scarcity, that could ultimately drive up the rates. So rather than thinking about it as a demand management tool, what you're really thinking of it as is a um, cost recovery tool. And your costs are going up significantly as a result of these drafts. You have to build additional pipelines or, um, to your point, additional reuse plants or desalination plants. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is everybody's looking at the Western U.S. to say what what a disaster it is, but it's not as if the East Coast doesn't. It, it just faces different challenges, and it could be everything from, you know, algae blooms um, and managing that. In some cases, as we've seen in Florida, but definitely we're starting to see in places like New York, is you know, uh, overdrawing of aquifers and saltwater intrusion into water supplies, and so you know, it's going to require some form of management, either sort of, you know, a Band-Aid, meaning doing something to the salty water, treating it as it comes out of the ground, or get to the heart of the matter and figure out what the problem is and try to reduce the withdrawals of, of such volumes from water supplies. I mean, there are other things like stormwater, large storm events that are causing stormwater problems. So, it's not as if the Eastern U.S., as we talk, which is what we're talking about, the U.S. as a whole, they're not in the clear, right? Everybody looks at the Western U.S. to say, well, no one should live there. Well, 
they've got problems that are more obvious, right? They're on the news every day. Um, we're in the Eastern U.S. less so. But back to the these cuts for a second. I mean, it is interesting to see that Arizona is going to get dinged about what 18%, I think is the number I saw of their allocations from the Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. So just for a bit of context, Lake Mead and Lake Powell dropped below, um, I think specifically Lake Mead dropped below the um, the level that uh, was previously determined to require cuts for to, at water allocations um, throughout that basin. And so to your point, Arizona is going to get hit the hardest. Uh, Nevada will also feel those cuts. The country of Mexico will feel those cuts as well. California, which is another stakeholder in that basin, doesn't actually, this round of cuts doesn't affect them because they're the senior water rights holder, but future um, rounds of cuts, if the lake levels keep dropping, um, are poised to affect Southern California as well. Yes. I mean, speaking of Southern California, I think one thing is that San Diego relies heavily on the Colorado River, about 60%, 66% of its water supplies, I think, come from there. San Diego has actually, and I'll see if I can dig it up and find the article that was put out, I'd say about a month ago, on San Diego's resiliency, water resiliency. They've been sort of planning for this for about 20 years. One, they've built up more reservoirs. They, I believe, acquired some water rights from Inland Empire, if I recall. Um, I could be wrong, but they've sort of done that. So they have senior rights that they acquired from somewhere else. But they also have built up desal and or reuse systems as, as another form of insurance. So amazingly, of all places, San Diego is in better shape than other parts of California. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if this current drought or these concerns accelerate additional measures, not only in California, but also places like Arizona. Um, I mean, it's interesting. We're seeing that, I think, as I mentioned to you just yesterday, Aaron, that, and I didn't realize this, that since 1994, Phoenix has doubled in size. Now, Phoenix, the metropolitan area is about seven and a half million people. And so it seems like this city and or state, they're going to have to make a choice where they put their dollars. Are they going to put it towards agriculture or are they going to put it towards urban growth? And it seems it's really going to, the dollars and or water is going to go towards urban, supporting urban growth because agriculture only makes up about one to 2% of the, of the state's economy. And it is a heavy water user. I think when, um, when Western states have been faced with water scarcity issues in the past, you know, the first step is always conservation, but they've actually done a reasonably good job of reducing water demand. Um, so I, I really question how much more they can squeeze just through conservation measures and zero scaping lawns and things like that. Um, and to your point, San Diego has the luxury of, um, of, investing in reuse and desalination. And that is in part because they sit on the coast. So for desalination, there's obvious benefits of, of sitting right next to the ocean. Um, and for reuse as well, because San Diego has been discharging wastewater into the Pacific Ocean for 
you know, the entire entirety of their existence, um, that water is up for grabs. If they can treat it to a point where they don't have to discharge it and can reuse it, that's their water. If you don't, if you're not the, the end point, um, especially out West, you, your wastewater discharges might be claimed by someone downstream. And so there is potentially a limit for inland cities that reuse isn't going to be as available to them because they're actually required to put that water um, back into the river for downstream users. Um, and I think that's definitely a concern for cities like Phoenix that don't have, you know, that the ocean sitting right there and are not the end of the line for the hydrological cycle. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll be interesting. I mean, as we talked a little bit about, and I know Cullen Mitchell, who works with us, has done some research on the semiconductor industry. And we know that there are semiconductor companies for various reasons that are going to places like to Arizona. One, Intel has been there for a long time. So there's some intellectual capital that's been built up over time um, and resources available in the region. I think the other thing is if you're going to, you know, the climate is generally good. Water is an issue, but it seems like water is something they feel that they can manage, whereas they can't really manage wildfires. They can't really manage earthquakes. So they might as well, you know, take the risk with water, even despite it being a heavy water user. I think the other thing is, like you said, you know, I think the USGS data shows that in the US, they do an analysis every five years, you know, as a whole, non-agriculture um, sectors have have gotten more efficient in their water uses, whether it be because the power sector, uh, there's been the transition to gas, natural gas, um, and newer plants, therefore they're more efficient, but also just things like water scents and, you know, shower heads are more efficient, toilets are more efficient. Um, we're doing some research right now, I know, on the household and how a gallon works its way through the household and where does it go and how is it managed. So that'll be interesting to see. Anything else to add on the BLM's water cuts? I, we, you touched upon a number of different things. I think another thing that we've been talking about a lot internally is um, these mandatory water cuts. So the BLM, this federal agency, uh, puts a hard limit on how much water is distributed to these various agencies ultimately the agencies have to get their users to reduce water demand and the tools available to them. We talked a little bit um, earlier about how price is not a great tool for controlling demand. So um, they're gonna have to start to get creative about whether that looks like fines for excess water use or voluntary conservation measures or um, how do you get consumers to actually stop using water? I think the number one way to do it is make sure people understand how much water they use. You know, what is that? The average person in the U.S. uses 80 gallons a day. Is that, that's sort of the magic number. How do you get it down to 50 or, because yeah, there are in fact communities that have run out of water in the Central Valley of California. Um, we obviously saw it Cape Town um, in 20, 2018 headed towards day zero. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I mean, we've talked about it in the office, general internal survey, who knows how much water they use in their house. I don't think one person knew, and we work in the water industry, right? I mean, the challenge that is, 
I, I'll speak for myself, I live in a condo, right? There are five units in my building. So we all run off a one, one meter. So do we use a lot of water? Uh, my kids are getting older. The showers are getting longer, but we're not watering a lawn either. So I think that's step one. Um, I could pull up how much power or electricity we use. I could give me like two minutes and I can do that on my phone. That's pretty straightforward. I think we need to get to a point where that is possible for, you know, water as well. And maybe it starts in the West, which is where those fines and such are going to, because you can't penalize people if they don't know what they're being penalized for. So that's, that's step one. Yeah, that's a that's a great um, point that there's just a lack of data and consumer awareness. I think, you know, we were talking in the office about um, a dream scenario where you get an alert on your phone, hey, you might have a leaking toilet, you should check that out. And I mean, at this point, is anybody getting up in the middle of the night to check whether their, their toilets are running? I'm not. I, I think, you you know, your insurance company might want to know too. I mean, it's at some point insurance companies they're paying, we've had colleagues who've had upstairs neighbors leaking toilet flood their house. You know, it's sort of once you don't know it and then the ceiling comes in. So I think that's one, that's a fun, there's a financial advantage to that in and of itself. So, well, look, I mean, thanks for sort of bringing it all the way back home. And there's a lot happening. I know in the municipal insight service, or I think we're calling them corporate subscriptions on our new website now. There's a lot going out the door, so much so that yesterday I said, we got to you know, slow the roll a little bit. It's getting so busy. But um, with that being said, Aaron, anything on your research agenda that you're working on um, over the next couple of weeks or month? Yeah, you know, we, we just put out this research on utility rates, which I think is always interesting, both for you know, the audience within the water sector, as well as consumers affected by those rates. We're also doing a lot of research on the impacts of all of these potential spending bills working their way through Washington. So that's kind of an ongoing project. You've put out a few things on that, and we will continue to do so as the politicians try to come to a consensus on infrastructure spending. We continue to look at reuse as well. And you know, we talked a little bit about kind of alternative water management strategies on the East Coast and the expansion of reuse outside of its strongholds in California and Texas and Florida. Um, so I think that that will be of interest to to Bluefield subscribers as well. Yeah, there's um, that infrastructure bill is killing me. <laughs> me too. Not going to lie. We, we've, we've already done a research note on it, looking at the Senate bill was it Senate bill 914. And then we started to do another one now i think we've sort of now we're kind of in this i don't want to say holding pattern but it's kind of like uh, this has to go through there's a definitely a, a game of chicken being played in washington that admittedly is impacting our research as well and it's driving me crazy so hopefully we can wrap that up because at the end of the day this would be unprecedented you know there are a lot of dollars potentially going to water and wastewater infrastructure. So I look forward to uh, getting some content out on that. So, all right, Aaron, thanks a million. Good luck with the celebrity uh, watch out in front of the office. Hopefully we see someone famous and uh, get a couple selfies. I don't know. 
And, uh, but thanks for stepping up and uh, we'll talk soon. Great. Thanks, Reese. All right. Take care. All right. That was fantastic. Always great to have Erin on because for those might be curious she's been with us since essentially day one and knows not only a lot about the water industry both in municipal and industrial but also she knows a lot about bluefield research uh, so she always adds value so thanks again to her uh, but before we sign off a couple things please subscribe and give future water review you can do it on apple Podcasts can also just subscribe on all the other podcast platforms. Secondly, send us a note to waterexperts at bluefieldresearch.com with any topic ideas you would like us to discuss. We're doing this for you. And thirdly, still in a pandemic. Yep, that's right. Still in it. So you might as well reach out to a friend, make sure they're okay. And when you're talking to them, tell them a little bit about the future of water and what we're talking about because you listen to it. You're at this point, so you obviously think it's interesting. And I'll also throw in another plug for Dave McGimsey's Water Values podcast. Always a good one. He brings in outside perspectives to talk about what they're seeing in the sector. This podcast and these water industry insights have been brought to you by the one and only Bluefield Research. To learn more about us and what we do and how we do it, visit us at our new website, bluefieldresearch.com. Till we talk again. Be safe, be well.